English translations sound somewhat redundant by repeating the word Lord in the opening line. O Lord, our Lord. The two words for Lord are not the same in Hebrew. Most English Bibles translate God's name Yahweh with the word Lord in capital letters. The second Lord is a different word. It is the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai means Lord in the sense of a ruler, a master, or king. And if we sharpen our translation... David is speaking to God saying, O Yahweh, our King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's name is majestic through all the earth. The name Yahweh probably means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. This signifies the significance of this name is that God exists in and of himself. Yahweh created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 2.4, and by his own will and by his own power, he existed before the universe came into being. Now, I make a statement like that, and you're probably nodding your heads and say, oh, we know that, but just think of that. Think of that, because we're so fixed on what we can see and feel and touch. By his own will and power, he existed before the universe came into being. He is the uncreated creator. He existed before the universe. He is the uncreated creator, the self-existing one. He is absolutely complete in himself. Yahweh is also God's personal name. The name he revealed to Israel as he brought them out of Egypt. This Yahweh is our king and he is our ruler. The living God who created the world and he redeems his people. This name also means that Yahweh will be true to himself. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be forced into anything. He will be who he will be. When I said that he cannot be manipulated, I didn't think of this before, but I just thought of it now. Some people think that if they pray 50 times about the same thing, God will change his mind. Doesn't work that way. God defines himself. He does not change to fit what we expect or what we demand of him to to be. God will be true to himself at all times and in all places God is today who he was yesterday and who he will be tomorrow. Now, God revealed himself to Israel as creator and savior. And he will not suddenly change. We can depend on him because he is a consistent, faithful, 
and trustworthy God. Yahweh has made his glory visible on the earth below and the skies above. O Yahweh, our King, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. I had an experience once with that verse. And I'm not even sure I realized where the verse was in the Bible. But I was walking on a golf course. I wasn't playing golf. I was just out there walking, uh, enjoying myself in the natural setting of the golf course. There was nobody on the course. The sky was pitch black in the west, which indicated that possibly a storm could be coming. And as I was walking down this fairway of the golf hole, all of a sudden the sky got pitch black right over me. Lightning bolts shot here, there, and everywhere. Claps of thunder. The wind twisted around and around, and then off it went. The sky broke open. Blue sky appeared. The sun came out. And over on that side, where it was still raining, I saw a rainbow. And I said, oh, Lord, our Lord. I said it out loud all by myself on that golf course. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I never forgot that experience. And so when I was working on the psalm, it came back to me again. That day, what I saw and how God gave me that statement to praise him when I could see that whole expanse of what all happened right before my eyes. Now, some people might say, well, you shouldn't have been on the golf course if there was thunder and lightning, but I had no choice. I was in the middle of the fairway and uh, decided to keep walking. I'm glad I wasn't out in a sailboat in Cape Cod Bay on Nantucket Sound with no motor. <laughs> I've been in that situation more than once, but uh, that wasn't the case that day. So, how does Yahweh display his glory in our world? How does he make his name majestic? The answer to that question is surprising and counterintuitive. The message of Psalm 8 is that Yahweh reveals his majesty in this world. Now this is very important. By using weak people to do his great work. I was, uh, I was at another golf course this week. <laughs> I was playing golf. And I met a couple of people who had been in Bonstable High School the same time I had been in Bonstable High School. And we got talking about what homeroom we were in. And one of the professors, the school teachers we had there, and they mentioned this woman who was a terror. She was a very good teacher, but she was a terror. And I was in her homeroom. And she indicated to me, because of what she could see about my work in school, that I would never survive her class. That I didn't have what it take to be in the college section of her English class. Now, I don't know if she's trying to just spur me on to maybe really work a little bit harder, or just maybe she's telling me the truth. She didn't want to see me fail. Well, I'm not bragging, but I didn't do well in high school. 
But I was in the Navy for four years, and I woke up in the Navy, and I took courses in the Navy, and I finally learned how to study and how to go to school. And So I, I did go to college. I did graduate from college. I went to seminary. I graduated from seminary. I've been in ministry for about 30 years. This lady has long since left this earth. As we were talking, the other students and myself, we all agreed that she was tough, and she... Uh, she didn't think if you didn't have it, you just didn't have it. But with God in your life and the Holy Spirit enabling you, you can overcome some of your shortcomings. And I'm here today because of that, because of his helping me overcome. I have dyslexia. I was told I'd never be able to survive college. Well, God has proven that to not to be the case. And it's such a blessing to be able to give him all the praise and the glory for helping me, a poor, weak, not too uh, academic uh, sinner, uh, to serve him as a pastor and as a servant. So, Psalm 8, the message is that Yahweh reveals his majesty in the world by using weak people to do not only great work, to just to do his work. God reveals his majesty by defeating his enemies through the weakness of children. And he also reveals his majesty by ruling the world through weak, mortal human beings. God does his greatest work through human weakness. When God uses weak people to do great things or to do good things, and mighty things. His glory shines because it is obviously his power and not ours. I had fellow students, and I went to two seminaries. I went to Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and Gordon Conwell, north of Boston. And we had some straight-A students in that school, straight-A students in my classes. And I know some of them and I'll tell you right now, they're not in ministry today. Why? They were either perfectionists, and you can't be a perfectionist in the ministry because you're dealing with imperfect people every single day, and you're not going to change a lot of them, and you need to be humble. And a lot of those people just were never humble. And uh, they're very proud of their academic accomplishments, but... They're not willing to be a servant. And that's the number one requirement in ministry is to be a servant. So when God uses weak people to do great things, his glory shines because obviously his power and not ours. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast about themselves in the presence of the Lord. Now when David triumphed over his enemies... It was obvious that the power came from God. Christ conquered through the shame and weakness of what? 
the cross. God often allows us to be weak and oppressed so that it is obvious that the power comes from God and not from us. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That's a great message for us today. God makes his name majestic by using weak people like you and me to do his great work. You know, there's churches in this country, and I don't have this in my notes, but it just crossed my mind as I'm sitting, standing here looking at you in this place. There are churches in this country that have magnificent edifices. They're packed to the gills with people. But does that mean they're being blessed more than Nosset Baptist Church? Not necessarily. No. You may have something here in this church that they don't have. Community. Caring. Love. And an opportunity to really serve the Lord. Notice how God triumphs over his enemies through weak children. Verse 8, chapter, I mean, Psalm 8, 2. He says this, Out of the mouth of babies and infants. Now we can say that physically, they're physically babies and infants, or we could say that maybe they're brand new Christians, who knows? You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Every church needs new believers. New believers who are really on fire for the Lord, along with seasoned saints who've been around a long time, because you need that balance. But new believers sometimes can really set things going in a church because they're so excited about Jesus and they love Jesus. And maybe they've come out of a world of trouble and stress and strain and they are so thankful now to be in a place where they are being cared for and loved. When you've been a Christian a long time, you've been in the church a long time, you sometimes forget what is it like to be an unbeliever right outside this door. To not know Jesus, to not love Jesus, to not know that God does care about you. See, we take that all for granted. I walked by the front door of the Oswald Baptist Church because that's where I grew up, Roman Catholic. I never stepped foot in that church until I was saved, and then I went in. And I was saved the day the pastor left that church as he led me to Christ. And so the next week when I went there, there was no pastor. There was a speaker from Gordon Conwell or Gordon College. And... But for me to go, after living in a small village all my life, basically, as a Roman Catholic, to then walk up the front steps of the Oslo Baptist Church for everybody to see who knew me, and everybody didn't know me in the town, 
That was a challenge. But God blessed that commitment. And thankfully, there were people in that church that reached out to me and discipled me, encouraged me. No idea that I'd end up going to seminary or being a pastor. If you told me that day, the first time I went in that church, say, hey, guess what, John? Ten years from now, you're going to be a pastor of a church in Dighton, of all places. I probably would have passed out. <laughs> but I sometimes think God has a sense of humor when it comes to those things. So that statement there, a better translation of babies is children. Jeremiah uses the same Hebrew word to describe children playing in the street. So that these are not necessarily babies in arms like the English words suggest. One Bible commentator says, God creates power and might for himself from the lisping, L-I-S-P-I-N-G, learning, stammering tongues of young children. You know, that's the way we are when we first become a Christian. Rather than establish strength through the lips of the wise and the aged, Yahweh reveals his majesty through little boys and girls. He brings himself glory through the youngest, the weakest, the most vulnerable human beings. When little children speak the gospel, the true gospel, God unleashes power beyond comprehension. When toddlers speak the gospel, they are a powerful, profound truth. Now, theologians may tease out and develop the nuances of God's word more fully, but a faithful scholar cannot leave behind the simple, glorious truths that come from the lips of young children. God gets all the glory because toddlers are so weak, so vulnerable, that the power of the truth cannot be from them. I had an experience when I was in seminary, at Western Seminary, that was, it, it really made a difference in my life. When you go into most professors' offices in seminary, there's no room for people, it's all books. There's books on this wall, that wall, that wall, that wall, and even on top of their desks, and all over the place, and papers, and what have you, and you, know, you knock on the door and you say, could I come in, Dr. So-and-so? I'd like to talk to you about something. And you do. As you're in there, you're looking around. You go, wow, this guy must know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, one time at the seminary, they had a, a fellow who was a former Catholic priest. He uh, had served in the Philippines, and he became a Christian, as he, when he, while he was a priest, he got converted, he left the priesthood, he went to seminary, he was teaching in a seminary in the Philippines, but he came to Weston to do a one seminar, I mean one seminar, uh, semester course on uh, Roman Catholicism versus Evangelical Protestantism. And uh, of course I came out of that, and so I was in this, so I wanted to know more about it, but I didn't take his class, I just went... I couldn't fit it in my schedule, but I went to meet with him anyways. Made an appointment, went to see him. Went up to his office, he was a, you know, had a temporary office there in the, where all the faculty were. Walked into his office, there wasn't a single book on any shelf. All he had in front of him was a Greek New Testament, 
and an English Bible. That's all. Greek New Testament, English Bible. I looked at it. I said, is that all you is that all you use in your classes? He said, It's all I need. It's all I need. And he explained to me how he taught his class and what it was about, and it was about the gospel, and actually uh, ministering to, uh, because the Philippines has a lot of Catholics, uh, his whole ministry was basically dealing with uh, Catholics who were no longer happy with being Catholics and wanted to find out more about Christ. And that was his, that was his mission, that was his ministry. But I never forgot that experience. You walk in this office and the only thing you see is a Bible? Well, that was a lesson I never forgot. John, Bible first, all that other stuff, second. The strength God establishes through children is no small thing. And this is true with young Christians and also young people. God uses the words of toddlers to defeat mighty enemies. The world is set against God. The nations rage and kings gather together against Yahweh and his anointed king. That's Psalm 2, 1 to 3. God silences these mighty foes with the lips of children. For all his strength and fury, Satan himself cannot stand against the simple truth, this very simple truth, which is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible. Tells me so. God won victory through the lips of children during Jesus' earthly life. Jesus applied Psalm 8 in the temple as he answered the Jewish leaders. In Matthew 21, 14 to 16, we read this. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests, those educated people, and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. The children recognized Jesus as Messiah who brought God's salvation. The chief priests and the scribes were horrified that Jesus would allow children to say such a thing. When Jesus accepted the praise of these children, Psalm 8 was fulfilled in two ways. First, the chief priests and scribes were defeated. God's enemies were silenced. The children's praise won the day. Their hosanna still wins the day as people read their words and recognize that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God established strength through their lips. The second way that God makes his name majestic in Psalm 8 is by ruling through the weakness of human beings. We are mortal, and we are frail. Yet God has placed us over all creation. And here again, God makes his glory clear to the watching universe by using weak people to do great work. David shows us. He shows us 
our frailty and limitations as human beings to show us how small we are. David lifts up his eyes to the night sky in verse 3 and says, Look, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. That is something we all need to do from time to time. Go out at night and look, especially if it's a clear night, at the stars and the night sky and realize how small we are. All of this, all of this is the work of God's fingers. The vast distances, the nuclear explosions of the stars are not rough, sweaty work like heavenly construction or road building for God. Creating the galaxies is detailed, delicate work for him, like a woman weaving lace. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It is spiritually healthy to gaze at the vast beauty of the night sky and feel small. The greatest mystery, though, is not that I am so small but that God's love is so great. He is mindful. God is mindful of men and women who are mere microscopic specks in the universe. And he cares for us. He cares for you. I don't care if this is the first day you've heard a message about Christ or it's the last day you're going to hear a message about Christ. You need to know He cares for you. God showed the depth of His love for us small, weak creatures through Jesus Christ. Jesus took the name Son of Man for himself, emphasizing his humanity. And as the Son of Man, Jesus was vulnerable. He took on mortal flesh to be our Savior. The great mystery is God's great love for tiny people. He is mindful of insignificant creatures, and he does care for us. David then pairs our frailty with the dignity that God has given us as human beings. First, we have the dignity of our position, where it says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. The word translated heavenly beings is literally God or gods. It can refer to angels, and that is how many English versions take it. God has given us the highest honor of any earthly being. On the one hand, we are earthly, fashioned from the dust of the earth. We are not mere animals, though, because God breathed his life into us. Genesis 2.7 God gave us a unique and exalted position in his created world. Second, we have the dignity of our crown. God crowned him with glory and honor. Since glory and honor ultimately belong to God, I take this to mean that we were created in God's image. The picture of a beautiful woman reflects her beauty 
in the same way God made us in his likeness to reflect his glory. Third, we have the dignity of our authority. Verses 6 through 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. God appointed us to rule over all creation as his representatives. Nothing on earth is left outside our control, whether in the sky, the earth, or the sea. The problem, though, is that this is not the way things are. Adam and Eve had this kind of authority, but it is long gone. We are not rulers over the earth. We can subdue some creatures and train them to obey us, but since the time of Noah, our rule over the animals is at best superficial. The writer of the Hebrews saw this problem and recognized that it points us forward to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 5 and 9, we read these words. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Now this is the writer of the Hebrews saying that. It has been testified somewhere. What is man? That you are mindful of him. Or the son of man? That you care for him. You made him a little lower, for a while a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor by putting everything in subjection under his feet. The writer goes on to say, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Still, the writer of Hebrews says, At present, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who's that? Jesus. Namely Jesus, crowned with honor, glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So it is obvious that creation is not under our control as human beings the way God originally intended it. But creation is under the control of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and everything is under his feet. Everything on earth, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, submit to his authority Everyone who is in Christ will reign with him as well. Psalm 8 is looking forward to the day when God's people will be renewed and take their rightful rule over the world. So how did Jesus take up his authority over all creation? Through the weakness of the cross. Christ crucified looked foolish. Christ crucified looked helpless. Christ crucified looked weak. 
Yet through the cross, God displayed his majesty most fully and brightly in this world. God makes his name majestic through human weakness. He creates strength through the words of babes. He, he rules creation through people. He saves the world through a crucified Messiah. Do you feel weak this morning? Has God given you a task or a situation in your life that seems impossible to deal with? Then you, you are in a good place. God reveals his strength in our weakness. For we have this treasure, this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to you and me. Let us pray. Dear Lord, help us to see and remember that the world view of the Bible restores our human dignity. In Psalm 8, David outlines that world view by alluding to creation, fall, redemption, and consummation which is a four-point summary of the gospel. Singing your covenant name, Yahweh, while reflecting on your glory above the heavens, reminds us as worshipers that you created the world as an act of covenant love. Your particular focus on and care of human beings should overwhelm us if and when we take the time to contemplate the heavenly expanse above. Despite our fall into sin, you still dignify your people as stewards of your creation. But as scripture testifies, mankind would need a savior to overcome not only personal sin, but also the fallen condition of creation. By quoting from Psalm 8, the writer of the book of Hebrews reveals that Jesus Christ our Savior is the perfect representative of human humanity described in Psalm 8. Jesus Christ our Lord is the one to whom the world was created. He also came to restore the image marred by the fall. He empowers even the weakest of us to participate in his redemptive plan. O Yahweh our King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verses 1 and 9 of Psalm 8 serve not only as bookends for the psalm, they also anticipate the end of all things when Christ's enemies will be made a footstool for his feet and his name will be majestic throughout all the earth. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen and amen.